I start becoming fascinated with things evolving around death and destruction and evil and all of that. I'm not saying I became a Satan worshiper because I didn't. I was afraid of evil things. I was afraid of evil things. I was afraid of Hello, my friends, and welcome to Worldwide Crime. I'm Eric, as always, and I'm joined with my co-host, Erica. What was that? What? Were you trying to make that intro clip sound like a rickety old episode of The Twilight Zone? You didn't like it? I thought it was dope AF. I'm sure someone out there will like it. They say there's a seat for every ass. I knew you'd like it. I didn't say. You now what? Just forget it. Who are we covering today? One of my all-time faves, Edmund Kemper. I feel like having a favorite killer is like, wrong, you know? It would make me feel dirty. Everyone has a favorite. It's normal. I doubt that so very much. Uh, whoa, what's... What's happening? Well, I don't have a favorite. We're not going to talk about what just happened. It, like, not at all. Okay, we're, we're not going to talk about it. Um, that, that, that's fine. This is all fine. Tell you what, let us know on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Worldwide Crime Podcast. Who's your favorite killer? I'll bet money that everyone has one. I'll take that bet. Not everyone shares your frame of mind. And I can't begin to describe what a good thing that is. Fascinating. It's like it never happened. Okay. I should add, like all of our shows, listeners are strongly cautioned. The shit this cat did is bad, even by my standards. Great. I can't wait to experience what I've been made to suffer through. Yet again. Have you ever considered getting a human co-host? Of course. But everyone I've asked is busy with adult shit. That's why I made you. You need friends. (laughs) I know, right? Let's just get this over with. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm more excited to cover Kemper than I have been to cover anybody else so far. The faster we start this upcoming nightmare, the faster it will end. And with that, let's begin. Edmund Emil Kemper III was born on December 18th, 1948 in Burbank, California. In early childhood, Kemper had it rough. Ed and his two sisters, Alan and Susan, were emotionally neglected by their father, Edmund Emil Kemper II. He had no interest in his children, and it affected them, as it would any child. But Ed II wasn't completely to blame for his behavior towards his kids. Ed II was married to the children's mother, Clarnell. She would later tell her two daughters that due to Ed II's emotional neglect, She noticed changes in Ed III, around the age of two. The impact of the neglect on Ed III was different than his sister's. Ed wasn't just ignored by his father, but his mother mistreated him. She didn't keep her mean-spirited proclivities focused on Ed III, but she also mistreated her husband. Ed II could be described as a quiet, emotionless, and some would say, a weak man. Ed II would allow Clarnell to walk all over him in a matter of speaking. Ed II was a World War II veteran. After the war, he worked as an electrician at Pacific Proving Grounds, working on atomic energy. Working around atomic energy had risks to health, such as radiation poisoning, causing a litany of other health problems, including cancer. Less so today, but then safety wasn't as strictly enforced, and the protection workers were provided wasn't nearly as effective as today's. Ed II was so miserable living with Clarnell 
He would say that he preferred to work around radiation than spend one minute with his overbearing wife. Ed II and Clarnell would fight often. It seemed neither of them were particularly happy with the circumstances of their current life together. Clarnell would constantly harp on her husband about money and his lack of taking responsibility for any of the family's pitfalls. To cope with the constant nagging, Ed II would go to local bars and drink. Either unaware or willing, Ed II was destroying his son. Stop me if you've heard this one before. (laughs) What is it about humans that cause them to go from love to hate like that? I imagine it has to do with ignoring all the bad shit in the beginning because of physical attraction. It seems to go south from there. Why can't humans just take the good with the bad? Because we're selfish by design. No human walking this planet is without sin. Some hide it better than others, but the bullshit is still there. That doesn't make any sense to me. It's like when priests molest kids. You're supposed to respect and seek guidance from priests. Or when a company gets preferential treatment because they use their wealth to buy politicians and other powerful lawmakers. It screws people like me, but they gain in ways that benefit them, such as tax breaks and shit like that. People sound stupid. People are stupid. And I'm not excluding myself from that by any means. I'm more stupid than most, yet here I am broadcasting my opinions for everyone to hear. Getting your opinions out there is really fucking dangerous. I'm stupid, right? So when I spew my stupidity to everyone that will listen to it, someone will say, Wow, that guy seems super smart. Now, me, a confessed idiot has the power to manipulate those that think I'm smart into thinking my horseshit is now truth, and that's where the snowball starts rolling. Stupid people with platforms are more dangerous than anything else on this planet. Holy shit. Are you all done? I could go on. Please don't. I think I'm all tapped out on twisted philosophy. Fair enough. I do apologize. I totally went off the rails there. Um, Let's just get back to the story. One of Ed III's sisters, Alan went on to say in later interviews she could never recall the two Eds ever having any kind of relationship. Ed III knew he had a father. He knew who his father was. He knew how fathers are supposed to be with their children. But they were, by all accounts, strangers under the same roof. Growing up in this environment had a devastating impact on Ed III. He had no sense of self-worth, self-confidence, and he really didn't know how to love or be loved. Ed II would eventually leave Clarnell, and the two would get divorced. Just when Ed III thought things couldn't get any worse, they did. Whatever feelings of rejection Ed III was dealing with amplified tremendously after his father left. After her husband's departure, Clarnell packed up her belongings and moved to Helena, Montana to raise her three children in 1957. Ed's behavior became more and more bizarre after the move north. He created games, as Alan would later describe in an interview. One example of these games Ed would play would be titled The Gas Chamber Man, and Ed would have his sister pretend to be in a gas chamber. He told her that when he flipped an imaginary switch, she was to start acting as though she were really in a gas chamber, coughing, gasping for air, and the like. One year for Christmas, Alan received a doll as a gift from her grandparents. She loved this doll and took particularly diligent care of it. She recalled that one day Ed and her were having a fight, and she ended up breaking Ed's water pistol, which he loved. 
Later that same day, she found her doll with its head removed and its hands cut off. She described the doll's discovery as, quote, weird, end quote. Correction time. It was a cap gun, not a water pistol. Why don't you just make the correction before we listen? Because it's less work this way. I've always been a fan of things that cater to my laziness. You really don't give a shit. No, I do not. Why? Because it caters to my laziness. I can't talk to you. Sure you can. You just have to understand that when I speak, it comes from a place of not giving shit and laziness. Sigh. You can't actually sigh, so you just say the word. Well, you designed me. And I'm lazy. And I don't give a shit. Now you've seen it come full circle. Story. Now. She got really outraged. She picked up that cap pistol. I said, don't throw that. And she threw it right at me. Wham. Hard. It hit the floor and my toe. And it hurt bad. Uh, but it broke the gun. The inner mechanism. It wouldn't work after that. I picked it up. I found that out. It wouldn't cock and pull the trigger anymore. And that really outraged me. So I said, so you want to play like that, huh? So I go running into her room. She says, what are you doing? What are you doing? She's shrieking and chasing me, right? So I run into her room, and I grab up her Barbie doll. It was the one fancy doll she had, the Barbie doll. Everybody has one, right? Uh, she had a pair of sewing scissors sitting there and a sewing machine, a sewing kit. I grabbed the scissors out. The head didn't decapitate. It pops off. So I popped that off. I said, well, that's going to go right back on. That's no damage. So I took the scissors and I cut the hands off the doll. I said, here, now you got a toy that doesn't work too good. I got a toy that doesn't work too good. She went on to detail the next memorable event in Ed's escalation toward violence. The family had a cat as a pet. One day, Ed found himself angry at it. Alan didn't say why. Whatever the reason, Ed saw it fitting to cut the feline's head off with a bayonet. Then he would dismember the cat, place the pieces in his bathrobe, and put them in a suitcase. Alan claimed she didn't witness the cruel act, but it was Clarnell that found the remains in the suitcase, and Alan was later told about the events leading up to the cat's discovery. Seriously? Fuck this guy. Well, we've talked about this in the past. Animal cruelty at a young age is a predictor for serial killers. But law enforcement wasn't aware of that when Kemper was killing folks. Sadly, no. Kemper was, however, important to the evolution of how authorities profile killers. I guess so. What Kemper shared in interviews with the FBI helped them catch the worst of the worst after, you know, the usual motives weren't at play anymore, like, you know, money, for example. Yeah, killers like Kemper are on a different level from a scorned spouse or a shitty business deal, I suppose. When Clarnell moved the kids to Helena, she had to decide which kids were going in what bedroom. She would give the two girls one bedroom, and Ed would wind up in the basement. At the time, Ed was nine years old, and this basement was not exactly suited for anyone to call a bedroom, certainly not a nine-year-old. Ed, already suffering from emotional neglect, found himself relegated to a dark, dingy basement, while his sisters and mother had normal bedrooms upstairs. This basement did have a light, and it was operational, but it couldn't be turned on until already in the basement. So now Ed must battle with his fear of the darkness, navigate the stairs leading down into the basement, and turn the light on himself every night. Alan would say in later interviews that she could hear Ed screaming in his sleep from time to time. Living in this basement was a traumatic experience and lent itself to his descent into evil. 
It was a walk-in basement, but it was in Montana. It was a full basement, had granite walls, uh, hewn wood floorboards, and it looked like some old dungeon out of a castle or something. About 18 feet wide and 35 feet long. Okay, and it was a concrete room, no windows. And it had a light bulb over a big industrial iron sink, you know, like a laundry sink, and had a pull string on the light. The bed was in the opposite corner of the room. It was a double bed, you know, a single bed. And uh, I had a dresser halfway. I had a couple of carpets thrown on the floor, old carpets. And there was a lot of storage stuff along the wall. And uh, I was there about six months in that room. And I developed some very, very uh, particular and articulate um, rituals that I felt I had to go through to protect myself. I was, again, it's embarrassing. I was a youngster. And if you can imagine me going down a staircase of rough hewn wood, there's no guardrail. So one step wrong, and you're off into this black pit. I turn on the light. It's a little circular light switch. And a single naked bulb goes on down at the bottom of these stairs. Okay. So I turn that light on. I open the door. I close the door, because my mother complains of the cold coming in from the basement. I go down the stairs. I get to the bottom. I do a 180-degree turn, and I walk the full length of the house on this floor with these pipes rattling and wheezing and banging over my head. It's pitch black ahead of me, and the only light is behind me hanging down from the ceiling. I'm now cut off from the house, cut off from them. I walk this full length into the darkness from this gradients of light into complete darkness, groping around in the dark. I, I do about a 45-degree angle when I get to the end. And I pull the string, and it lights up this end. And then I'm supposed to walk all the way back to the other end, turn that light off, and now walk toward the light from the dark. And I've got this horrible terror going on inside of me. And this is every night. This is every day because it's pitch black down there, no windows. Ed began wetting the bed. Clarnell didn't like this, of course, but her treatment over this was not something parents would usually do. She berated Ed and said whatever she could to make him feel worse about it. Ed started showing a fear of people. It was in this basement that caused it to become concrete in Ed's mind that he was the outcast of the family. If his own family didn't want him, no one would. In August of 1963, Ed decided he couldn't live with Clarnell any longer. His resentment toward her was more than he could bear. Ed would take a bus back to California and try to reconnect with his father. This was Ed's shot at living the life he wanted. If his dad would be willing to take Ed and raise him as any kid should be, all the dark fantasies, the bad dreams, strange behaviors, they would all just go away. The problem Ed would run into with this idea is his father had remarried. His bride's name was Elfried Weber. According to stories heard, Elfried found Ed to be, quote, creepy, end quote. It was said that in one incident, Ed caught a glimpse of her unclothed in her bedroom. Elfried would tell Ed's father what happened. Ned's father decided one Christmas that he would take Ed to see his grandparents, Edmund Sr. and Maud, in North Fork, California. Ed thought it would be nice to see them for the holidays, then head back home with his father. What Ed didn't know was that his father planned on leaving him there, and Senior and Maude had no idea they were even coming. So now Ed stands on the front porch of his grandparents' home, alone and confused. 
Maud notices Ed outside from her desk where she was authoring an article for a magazine. She walked outside and she would ask him what he was doing there. And Ed would tell her. She and Senior would take Ed in. Ed, now 15, is living on a remote ranch 250 miles from his father in isolation. Ed would begin school and made a friend, David Dozier. As it would turn out, David was also a neighbor to Senior and Maud. David would go on in later interviews to claim that he was the shortest in his ninth grade class and Ed was the tallest. And if anyone messed with him, they'd have to answer to Ed. Ed would be picked on in school because of his height. Edmund Kemper would grow to 6 feet 9 inches tall and 280 pounds. Ed was described as a mostly quiet kid and got along with mostly everyone he met. But Ed was struggling. He hated school and took notice every time he would see girls giggling. The next year, all the hatred and disgust Ed had toward people and himself would come to a head. One day, Senior was out in town buying groceries, and Ed would be left alone with Maud. Maud was at her table in the kitchen working on the proofs for one of her children's books. Ed grew up surrounded by domineering, matriarchal women his entire life. His mother, his grandmother on his mother's side, and yes, Maud. Ed decided he would grab his rifle and the dog and go out shooting. Maud yelled after Ed, Don't shoot the birds! David could recall that afternoon a deputy coming to his house to inquire about the location of the Kemper Ranch. David could see by the expression on the deputy's face that whatever it was, it was serious. As it turns out, the deputy was responding to a disturbance at the Kemper household. What was discovered left everyone shocked. Ed returned back home with the dog after being out shooting. He found Maud sitting in the same place he had left her. They began arguing. Ed couldn't recall what it was about, but he wound up taking that rifle and shooting Maud in the back of the head twice. Once she lay on the floor slain, he shot her one more time in the back. After this grisly act, Ed heard his grandfather outside getting the groceries out of the vehicle. In a split-second decision, and in some twisted perceived mercy, Ed decided seeing his grandmother in the condition he left her would break Senior's heart. Ed would shoot his grandfather in the front yard with the same 22 caliber rifle used to end Maud's life. Senior was still holding groceries when he dropped to the ground and perished. This guy is a straight-up He-Man woman hater. Oh, you have no idea. He tops Maud, then shoots her in the back while she's laying on the ground. Then out of love for Senior... He kills him just so he won't have to see Maud dead. He's 15. How does a kid sink that far? Uh, it's a combination of all the shit he'd been through up to this point. But for the first time, he's fighting back. There are other methods, though. There are. But who was around to teach him? He did what he felt was fair. It's starting to sound like you're defending him. I can call 911 if there is a problem. Okay, what he did was unforgivable. I'm not defending him. Just trying to understand... This is my opinion on the matter, that's all. I think you're one murdered pet away from being just like him. Not possible. I'm not as tall or as heavy as he is. Was that a joke? Yeah, that I do. You're an idiot. Perfect. When authorities finally caught up to Ed, he would tell them that he lost control of his body and he didn't know what he was doing. But when later asked about the murders, Ed would say that, quote, it felt good, end quote. Ed had a genius level IQ. Though he hated school, 
He was exceptional at manipulation and gaining friendships where he found it to be necessary. There was a long-going debate if he was being genuine in interviews or just being friendly to look the part. Ed would tell his story to anyone that would listen. Because of his intelligence and charisma, the interviews in which he agreed to are remarkable. But we'll get into more of that later. After the murder of his grandparents, Ed was sent to a Tescadero State Hospital in 1964. Here he would spend the next five years. A Tescadero was a mental hospital in California. Ed was still just a teenager, and this facility was not meant for juveniles. Of the roughly 1,600 inmates, a number of them were murderers and sex offenders. Ed's most formative years were spent with these people. Ed would learn from these predators life lessons in crime, such as, if you're gonna rape someone, there is no other choice but to kill them. If left alive, you will be caught. Ed would learn to give the medical personnel exactly what they needed to form some sort of comfort with him. Ed would come off as quiet, unassuming, and friendly even. He would spend time with attending psychologists and counselors, only to go right back to the wolf's den full of monsters. Ed learned to mold himself to fit any situation and not stand out. Tough to do when you're as tall as Ed is. But this made him even better at manipulation. Ed would be polite and friendly, all while having overwhelming fantasies of death and carnage. Ed said later that a Tescadero had no idea that these thoughts were constantly running through his mind. One of Ed's manipulations got him access to the very thing that led to his release. He began working as an assistant to the doctors. Because of Ed's superior intelligence and friendly demeanor, he was eventually tasked with passing out, grading, and filing all the psychological tests given to patients. This allowed Ed to see where he can improve on his own scores. Better scores meant earlier release. When it came time for Ed's release from the hospital in 1969, although diagnosed to paranoid schizophrenic, his excellent scores led to his records being sealed. Because he was a juvenile when the murders happened and being considered, quote, rehabilitated, end quote, it was as though he was just a normal person to anyone that was unaware of the murders. One recommendation the doctors gave authorities was to not allow Ed to be placed in his mother's care again. Unfortunately, that recommendation would be ignored, and back to Clarnell is where Ed ended up. The summer of 1972 in Santa Cruz was full of people living happy and free lives. It had its fair share of college kids from the University of California, Santa Cruz. This was a time of free love in the age of Aquarius. It was also the height of the protests against the Vietnam War. The college kids that took part in this lifestyle were given the moniker, hippies. UCSC was a co-educational school, meaning there were both men and women attending. The term co-ed, however, was used to describe the female students. There was no shortage of magazines and videos that heavily sexualized the term and the young women that bared it. This wasn't exactly what these students wanted, but that's what happened. The mode of transportation for many of these kids was hitchhiking. Many college kids then didn't have the means to buy their own vehicle, and very few had the luxury of having parents that would buy one for them. This was quite common at the time, but in this area of the world, at this time, a good portion of hitchhikers were co-eds. 
Hitchhiking was fun for these kids most of the time. They got to meet new people, get to their destination, and it was free. Santa Cruz was mostly crime-free in the early 70s. Petty things would happen, but violent crime was seldom a concern. That summer, however, things would change. What the fuck? What are you doing? That, my robot friend, is the end of part one. We're doing parts now. I miss the days you would put together enough material to make a show barely 14 minutes long. Like I said, Kemper is one of my faves. So, now we do parts, for stories you like, and fuck everything else. Is that it? No. I'm new to this whole podcasting thing, so there's a learning curve. Also, maybe. I can't wait to see the internet roast you. Me either. I might learn something new about myself. Good God, man. Hey, friends. If you liked today's episode, make sure you rate it. It really helps us out. If you have a request for a future story, let us know on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash worldwide crime podcast. Please do so. I could use a break from the shit this guy chooses. Thank you all, and we'll see ya.